this sermon. And that is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. In fact, that is the longest single teaching block that we have recorded of Jesus. And we've been walking through it since November of 2022 because it's worth it. It is rich and it is beautiful and Todd has been taking it apart line by line to make sure that we don't miss a thing, which is exactly what you should do. But today we get the joy of reviewing the entire sermon. We'll see how it goes, right? But if you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew 5. We're not going to have time to read every word, but we will be moving through it. So we walk into this, uh, into this Sermon on the Mount, bringing all sorts of ideas with us that the hearers didn't have. We might have the idea that there's an Old and a New Testament in our Bibles. We might have ideas that Jesus is both God and he's also man. We might have ideas of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all sorts of wonderful and true ideas. But for today, I, I want us to pause for the next half hour and try to listen to this sermon as if we were the original audience, as if we were the disciples. So who were the disciples? The disciples were 12 young men who grew up in the Roman Empire, or for our purposes today, I'll call it the Kingdom of Rome. And people in the kingdom of Rome looked a certain way. As, as anyone in any country looks, right? Americans have a look and feel, and so did the citizens of Rome. And they dressed a certain way, they talked a certain way, they acted a certain way. And there was this tiny little pinprick of a country called Judea. And the people there did not look like Rome very much. They dressed in a different way, they talked in a different way, they worshipped a different god. They went to these synagogues every Saturday and they heard sermons taken out of what they called the Law and the Prophets, but what, what we would call the Old Testament, their scriptures. And these men are just going about their daily lives and all of a sudden this man shows up. And, and he speaks with this authority that no one had ever spoken with. He had a gravitas about them and he invited them to come and follow him. And for some reason they did. And now, we get to see what he has to say. They probably were thinking all sorts of thoughts, like, is he going to set us free from Rome? Because there's this figure spoken of in the Old Testament, in the Law and the Prophets, called the Messiah, which means Savior, and he's going to set us free. What's he going to set us free from? So this is Jesus' manifesto. This is the first major sermon he probably gave. So, let's see what he has to say. We're going to start in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you notice that phrase, kingdom of heaven, got put twice, once at the beginning and once at the end? 
I, I don't know about you, I don't talk about kingdoms very often. It's not language I'm familiar with. So what is a kingdom? A kingdom is just a nation, a country, a group of people who is ruled by a king. So the kingdom of heaven is the people, the country of Jesus, or the group of people who is ruled by King Jesus. And when I say the kingdom of heaven, everyone's probably on board. That sounds great. I say, hey, do you want eternal life? Do you want eternal paradise? Sign me up. Sounds great. But when we look at what a kingdom is, a kingdom involves submission. So in the first words out of Jesus' mouth, there's already a challenge being put forth to his people. Because it's easy to follow in most of the ways, right? Don't lie, don't steal. Like, yeah, we get that. We probably shouldn't do that. But a lot of us, we, we see things in the scripture that are hard. Maybe, maybe we don't like. And then we start hearing sentences like, well, it was written like 2,000 years ago, and how reliable can it be, right? Or, or maybe, we have, maybe we have some sin in our lives that, that we don't want to get rid of. So, we, so Lord, I'll submit in all of these areas. Just leave me this one. And the problem with that is when we submit Unless we submit in absolutely every area, we're not submitting in any. Because then we have crowned ourselves with the crown that only Jesus can have. We're submitting to ourselves. So the first thing we see is that we must be fully submitted to the king. And this sounds like a negative. It sounds like something that is going to be hard and painful and we're not going to like it when we give up control, right? Because we all love having control when we don't realize that he's the God who created joy. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. I've never met a Christian who has submitted their lives to Christ who regrets it. We just witnessed overflowing joy out of these people. It is the joy of submission. We don't have to follow God. We get to. And when we follow God, he changes us. And just like the citizens of Rome and the citizens of Judea had a look and feel, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven also have a look and a feel to them. And it's not what I expected. Let's read it. They were poor in spirit. They're mourning, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted for righteousness. If someone had asked me to list out what are the character traits of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, those are not the words I would have picked. I would have picked powerful and mighty and brave and influential and clever and all of these words that I think are really good and that because God probably needs my help, right? But no. The citizens are poor in spirit because they recognize the poverty of their souls and failure to live up to the standard of God's righteousness. They mourn because of their sin against God, and that makes them meek. They hunger and thirst for righteousness when they see God's majesty. This changes their behavior, and they become merciful. God makes their hearts pure. They strive for peace and are persecuted for what they have become. And as you look at that list, if, if that looks like, man, I could never be that, I want you to know these are not qualifications. They are descriptions. They are not things that you must do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. They are the descriptions of how God will change you once you enter. 
There is nothing that we can do to enter the kingdom of heaven on our own. But let us ask ourselves, are we like these citizens? In the next four verses, Jesus will go on to say that his citizens will be the light of the world. The light of the world. He gave them a mission. He told them that just as they have been shown truth, because they have been shown truth, they must go into the world and spread that truth. Christians, that means that we're not just saved to get a get-out-of-hell-free card. We are saved to enter the mission of God on this earth and to spread the good news that has been spread to us. And all of the testimonies, didn't you hear it? My friend told me. My parents told me. This is how people enter the kingdom of heaven. God uses us to reach the world. You have a mission here. The journey begins with repentance, but it does not stop there. Let's read verses 17 and 20. Jesus continues, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, that's a strange phrase, right? Fulfill the law and the prophets. What does that mean? Like we said earlier, the law and the prophets was shorthand for the Old Testament. So to fulfill that, how do you fulfill prophecy? Well, you have to do everything the prophecies say of you, right? That makes sense. How do you fulfill the law? Well, there were an awful lot of laws. And if we divide them up, we can really divide them into three rough categories. You had laws that were moral in nature. Don't lie, don't steal. You had laws that were civil, don't eat pork. And then they had laws that were ceremonial or, or sacrificial. Now, bear with me. I can imagine how someone could think they could fulfill the first two. Moral and civil, right? You say, oh yeah, I'm a super good person. I can definitely fulfill the moral and the civil components of the law. But here's what doesn't make sense. I can fulfill the sacrificial part of the law. Because in order to do the sacrifices, you needed a lot of things. For one, you needed a sacrifice. You needed something pure and unblemished. You also needed a temple to do the sacrifices in. And you also needed a high priest. Christians, this is the coolest part of the gospel. Jesus came and he said, I am the sacrifice. I am the pure and spotless lamb. He said, my body is the temple and I willingly lay it down. And he said, I'm your high priest. I come to intercede for you. So in this one sentence, Jesus makes the most radical statement of anyone we've ever seen in the Bible. He claims to be everything. He claims to be our only possible way to heaven. That's the gospel. So then you ask, how can my righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees? How could I be more holy than the guys who study the Bible for a living, that memorize large portions of it? How could I ever be like them? Because my righteousness doesn't come from me. Because I wear Jesus' righteousness that he handed me like a present. And it washes me until the point where I'm clean. And I get to stand before God completely clean. Out of nothing that I did for myself. Only out of the dramatic, radical goodness of Jesus. This is the good news. You can be holy. You can be righteous. Because he was. 
So to recap, Jesus has made a way for us to become citizens of heaven. And as citizens, we abandon our former lives and live for his kingdom. So you may want to keep your eyes on the screen for the next bit. We're going to be moving pretty quickly through the rest of the chapter. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Have you hated? Have you had any lust? Wrongfully divorced? Retaliated against someone? Failed to love your enemies? Then you're not perfect. I think this part of the sermon is for anyone who heard Jesus say, your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees and thought to themselves, yeah, I could do it. If I clean myself up, right? I'm going to do better tomorrow. I can make it. I can earn this. And Jesus goes, it's not about that. You can't. I guarantee it. There's not a single part of the law that you could keep. And this makes me love Jesus anymore because that means if Jesus fulfilled all the law, he never had a lustful thought. He never had a hateful thought. He never retaliated against anyone that he shouldn't have. What a beautiful Savior we have. And that word perfect, you must be perfect, that doesn't mean morally blameless. It means perfectly suited for its purpose. It means it does what it is designed to do, which means we're not only guilty for the sin that we have committed, we're guilty for the times that we haven't done something that we were supposed to do. We were made in the image of God and we haven't properly served him. So church, let's get rid of any notion of I'm only human or it's no big deal or everybody makes mistakes. When we stand before God's holiness, we see that we are worse than we ever thought. We are worse than we could possibly imagine devoid of any hope but the Savior himself. And I realize, I I get it, I'm painting a very dismal picture right now. But, But the best stories have the darkest moments to them. The gospel isn't good because we were only a little bit sinful. The gospel is good because we were so incredibly sinful, and yet Jesus still died for us as sinners. That's what makes this good news. Jesus is going back and forth and back and forth and showing us our insufficiency and his sufficiency because his sacrifice covers everything. 
So let's recap again. Jesus says that he has made a way for us to become citizens of heaven. As citizens, we abandon our former lives and we live for the kingdom. So Jesus spent that last section showing us what not to do, and now he changes into what we should do. So again, if you'd like to look to the screen, you probably know this. If you would like to, to read it with me, that'd be great. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So again, you saw the word kingdom. Jesus continues to bring in that theme throughout the sermon. And it's a beautiful prayer that we could analyze for weeks, and, and we did, thank God. But one thing I'd like to quickly point out is that it says that we get to ask our Father for forgiveness. This was probably very weird to the disciples. They would have been thinking of that sacrificial system, right? They would have been thinking, if I want forgiveness, I go to Jerusalem and I bring a goat. That would have been their thought process. But Jesus says, no, not only can you call him father, which was not a thing, you can call him father and say, dad, can I please be forgiven? I'm sorry. This is the best news. This is why we have a word gospel, because there is no better news than the fact that God is not just our king. He's also our father. So church, ask and you shall receive. So Jesus has made a way for us to become citizens of heaven. And as citizens, we abandon our former lives and we live for the kingdom. If you'll look to the screen again, we're going to be reading portions of chapter 6 and 7. When you fast, you cannot serve God and money. Do not be anxious about your life. Judge not that you be not judged. Ask, and it will be given to you. So whatever you wished that others would do to you, do also to them. So, as citizens of heaven, we pray humbly, we fast privately, we do not love money, we are confident in our God. We are not hypocrites, we ask for good gifts, and we love those around us. Is anyone not feeling good enough? <laughs> Because I'm not. And here's even more good news that comes with the gospel. Because just as you are not saved by your own effort, so you are not sustained in this walk by your own effort. The grace of Jesus is sufficient to escape you, to get you out of the fire of hell, and it is sufficient to sustain you until you walked into heaven. Praise God. Jesus has made a way for us to become citizens of heaven. And citizens abandon their former lives and live for the kingdom. In the next section, the mood is going to change again. Jesus has been showing us what citizens of heaven do, but now he's going to warn us about hell. And that might seem very strange to us. What, what does it mean to, to warn us about hell? And even more, Jesus talks a lot more about heaven then he talks about hell. He says the word heaven far more times in the sermon than he says the word hell. 
And many people have asked the question, why? Why does Jesus talk so much about heaven and so little about hell in this sermon? And I have at least three reasons that I've thought of. First, God prefers to be characterized by his love rather than his wrath. Nine times in the Old Testament we read that he is a God slow to anger, and who knows it? Abounding in steadfast love. That's how he wants to be known by his people. His wrath only exists as a response to our sinfulness. If there was no sin, there would be nothing for God to be wrathful against. So wrath isn't at the core of who he is, but love is. Second reason why I think he talks more about heaven than hell. While wrath isn't at the core of who he is, justice is. Think, think of the most heinous crime that you've ever heard of. I, I think of people like Jeffrey Epstein. Who saw the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein and thought, he doesn't deserve any punishment. Nothing should happen to him. We're fine with justice when it's against someone's sins that we find particularly heinous. But the problem is, that means we're not viewing our own sin properly. We do not see how depraved we are inside. And what does, the, what does sinning against an infinite God deserve? Infinite punishment. That punishment, hell, it's not the kingdom of Satan. We have this pop culture idea that hell is this silly fun place where Satan has his trident and he sits on a throne and orders everybody around. That's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes it as endless torture and a right punishment of God himself. It is the epitome of not being with God. It is the result of making yourself an enemy of God. So if God is to be righteous, if he is just, hell has to exist. And third, and finally, sinners don't follow God out of a fear of hell. They follow God out of a reverence for God. Citizens, we've been talking about these people, these citizens that hopefully most of us consider ourselves to be. Have they seemed like people who are just running away from something? I don't think so. They seem like people who are sprinting towards something. There's a goal that they're trying to get to. The fear of hell is a good thing that is meant to turn us to look for someone who is capable of getting us out. But if we never move beyond fear into love, we will never be citizens of heaven. The reason we sing hallelujah when we see people get baptized is not because they escaped hell. It is because there is a God big enough, sufficient enough, and good enough to save us from hell. It is about him, not about us. So we cry holy, and we pursue the king. The king who fulfilled the law and the prophets. Love is what will sustain us, church. So in these last few passages, Jesus talks about our eternity. Let's read one of them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, I, then will I declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone, in, not everyone enters the kingdom. Not everyone ends up as a citizen. And this is a painful, painful message. But it's also a beautiful one. Because the people who depart from Jesus are who? The people whom he did not know. And I heard it in your testimony, which was beautiful. You said, but I didn't know God. You followed these rules. You did the right things that you thought you were supposed to do, but you did not know God. And this is why us Protestants go on and on and on about having a relationship with Jesus. It's because we are the people who more than anything, the cry of our hearts is at the end of time to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and to walk into eternity already knowing Jesus, the all-sufficient sacrifice, the all-sufficient high priest, the temple himself, Jesus. That is the goal of our faith, church. We get to know our God, our King, our Father, our friend. What a beautiful God we serve. So in conclusion, there's a lot of beautiful ethical teaching that we didn't have time to delve into, but our job today was to find the core, the central part of the Sermon on the Mount. And church, the central part of the Sermon on the Mount is the gospel. It is the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone has made a way for us to become citizens of heaven. And now that we have become citizens, we turn away from our former lives and we turn towards Jesus and live for his kingdom. Uh, a few years ago, um, I had the privilege of sharing a gospel message with uh, some of the youth. And after the gospel message, um, I invited anyone who wanted to come talk to me to come talk to me in case they didn't understand something or or just wanted to talk about it, or, or maybe even pray together about what salvation is. And that offer extends today. But a kid came up to me. He's probably a 13-year-old boy. Great kid. And he wanted to talk. And we went through the gospel point by point. We talked about how we were sinners, how we didn't measure up to what we were supposed to be. We sinned against a holy God. We talked about Jesus making a way and how he made a way and what that means to love him. And we talked about all of it, and, and everything inside of me was saying, pray with him. It's time. You pray the sinner's prayer, and he is going to receive Christ right now. Everything inside of me was saying that, and there was this pull that I, I can't explain. I think it was the Lord, and out of my mouth came a question which I've never asked anyone, and I said, are you ready to submit to Jesus as king? He said, no. It blew me away. In my, I couldn't understand how someone could understand every piece of the gospel and say, he's not ready. I happily report to you that that ended up changing, having nothing to do with me, and he is following the Lord joyfully. Praise God. But I put that same question to you. Maybe you're not a citizen today, and you didn't understand some of the big Bible words that I threw out today. Please come talk to me after the service. Talk to Pastor Todd, Pastor Steve. Pastor Chris here, I don't know. Come talk to us. We'd love nothing more to do than to talk about this message. Maybe you're a citizen of heaven here today, 
And you need to return to the joy of your submission. Because don't you know it? If you have ever been a citizen, you know the joy of being fully Christ's. Would you close by praying the prayer that Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 again with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.